You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. My name's Nan Clark. I um, am part of the pastoral care team here at Third Church. So we're in the second week of a series called Our Resurrection Hope. We're looking at how the resurrection has power to transform us. Last week, Corey laid the groundwork for the series. In Jesus' resurrection, God released his power into the world in a new way, and God calls us to live now in the present as resurrection people, even as we wait for the return of Jesus when he will establish fully his kingdom on earth. A lot of what we understand about the resurrection comes from the writings of the Apostle Paul. So today what we're going to do is just take a bit of a step back and look at Paul's own encounter with the resurrected Jesus and how that encounter transforms the way he thinks and lives. Now, just in case you're confused... Paul is the apostle, uh, but he was also called Saul. So in the reading today, his name is Saul. Saul was his Hebrew name, and that's why Luke, as he tells his story, uh, refers to him by that name. But later we'll see in the, well, you can read in the book of Acts, that as Paul starts his ministry to the Gentiles and starts moving out of into the Roman Empire, he starts to use his Roman name, which is Paul. So for the most part, we're going to stick with Saul today. <laughs> so we'll, uh, let me pray, and then we'll hear the scripture reading. Lord, thanks so much for your word today. Thank you that you are a God who speaks, who opens our eyes, who draws us into deeper and deeper relationship with you and who transforms us, Lord, so that we can be instruments of your grace and your mercy and your love in the world. Lord, would you teach us today, we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Amen. So Reagan and um, Mason are going to read our scripture for us today. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether man or woman, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul! Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. He replied, Now get up and go into the city. You will be told what you must do there. The men traveling with Saul stood there, speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple 
named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas, straight on a straight street, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, answered Ananias, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority of the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings to, and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much, how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on this road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength. This, this is, is the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 9, verses The kids always steal the show, don't they? <laughs> well, one of my favorite plays is Les Mis. Um, I think I've seen it at least five times over the years. The story, in many ways, is a contest between two archetypical characters, Inspector Javert is a fervent devotee of the law who ultimately takes his own life because he cannot comprehend God's mercy. Jean Valjean is a criminal whose life is transformed by a single act of mercy. Our text today has similar themes, but instead of two protagonists, we'll see one man, transformed by an encounter with the risen Jesus. So we can easily divide this story into three scenes, and we'll take a few minutes to look at each one. First, we'll look at Saul's encounter with the risen Jesus. Then we'll look at the three days he spends blind in Damascus. And finally, we'll look at Ananias' visit to Saul in these three scenes, I hope that you'll see three revisioning moments that completely alter Saul's understanding of God's mercy. So let's start with the first scene. Before we uh, go into it, though, we need a bit of background information that will help us understand Saul. This isn't the first time we meet Saul. Luke's already introduced him in chapter 7. We see a group of the religious leaders hauling Stephen, one of the first deacons of the fledgling church, before the high priest. They charge him with blasphemy because he is proclaiming that Jesus is, is risen from the dead. 
and that he's the Messiah. When Stephen calls them out for their hypocrisy, they're enraged. In their fury, they drag him out of the city. They're so mad, Saul says, it's like they're going like this, don't say anymore, don't say anymore, we can't hear it. They're so furious. And just before they stone him, they lay their coats at the feet of a man named Saul. And as Stephen is dying, Luke tells us, and Saul approved of his execution. This same Saul then leads an intense persecution against the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. As a result, all but the apostles flee the city. But Saul's not satisfied with just having them leave. He pursues them so that he can arrest them and haul them back to Jerusalem. We might describe Saul today as a man with anger issues. In our text, we see him on his way to Damascus, breathing threats and murders against the disciples of Jesus. Listen to how Saul himself later describes this period of his life. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And so I did in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." You might be wondering why Saul is so angry. Why is he so opposed to Jesus and so intent on persecuting his followers? Why can't he just live and let live? Let's explore that for a minute. In first century Palestine, there were several Jewish sects. Each one had a different vision for Israel's future as a nation. Saul is a member of an unofficial but powerful lobbying group or pressure group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees advocate uncompromising and strict obedience to the law of Moses and also to all their traditions that have grown up around the law on how you can better keep it. Their hope lay in the belief that the Messiah would vindicate them for their faithfulness, and judge everybody else, mostly Jew and Gentile. The Gospels tell of many encounters between Jesus and the Pharisees, and most of them were pretty adversarial. Jesus rebukes them for their hard-heartedness and their lack of mercy. He unmasks their arrogance and their hypocrisy, and they get really angry at him. because they see him as a threat to their position, their authority, and their influence in the nation of Israel. So not surprisingly, they spearhead the plot to arrest and uh, crucify Jesus. After his death, they probably assume, end of story, <laughs> another wannabe Messiah taken care of. But when Jesus' followers start claiming that he is risen from the dead and that he is Israel's true Messiah, 
all that rage resurfaces. And with a dogged determination, they set out to stamp out these heretics. And Saul is just the man for the job. So can you see how Saul's anger, which is actually rooted in the conviction that he has that the Pharisees are the only true people of God, and how that has blinded him to the truth of who Jesus really is. So Paul's trip to Damascus doesn't go quite as he planned. As he nears the city, he stopped dead in his tracks. He's struck by a blinding light and falls to the ground. He hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asks. And he, when he says, who are you, Lord, it's really, he's just saying, who are you, sir? He, he's not thinking about God here at this moment. <laughs> and then he hears, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. In this one sentence, Saul's world is turned upside down. Or maybe we could even say right side up. If Jesus is speaking to him, then Jesus must be alive. If Jesus is alive, then his followers must be right. Jesus is Israel's true Messiah. This blinding realization is the beginning of Saul's transformation. It focuses, this scene focuses on the shocking realization for Saul that he's actually been on the wrong side of Israel's story. He's been persecuting the very God that he believes he is serving and defending. How could he have been so wrong? How could he have been so blind? His assurance, his mission, his pride, all are shattered by the realization that Jesus is the Messiah, the risen Lord. All he can do is let his friends lead him by the hand, dazed and confused, into Damascus. In scene two, we see Saul in Damascus. For three days, he sits alone in his own darkness. He fasts and prays, and I imagine he's spending a lot of time reflecting on what's just happened to him. Perhaps he's remembering that parable that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector, a parable that was directed towards those who trusted in themselves and treated other people with contempt. Both men come to the temple to pray. The Pharisee marches in, stands, and lifts his head up, and he prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of everything I have. The tax collector is standing far off on the side. He doesn't lift his eyes. He bows his head, and he actually beats his breath, which was, a, in their culture, a sign of repentance and lamenting. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. As Paul ponders the parable, perhaps now he sees his own arrogance, his self-righteousness, his disdain 
for those he dismissed as sinners. Perhaps he's also remembering all those Old Testament scriptures that tell of the God who is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who delights to show mercy. Perhaps he's remembering all the stories that demonstrate God's mercy and loving kindness over and over and over again. Only in his blindness does he see that he too is in desperate need of God's mercy. This is a dark and lonely scene. His whole way of understanding God's purposes for Israel and the world is being reoriented around Jesus, the risen Messiah. In our last scene, Ananias comes to pray for Saul. This is the only place in scripture that we hear about Ananias, except a little bit later, uh, Paul is retelling this story, and he says about Ananias, he was a devout man according to the law and well spoken of by all the Jews in Jerusalem, sorry, in Damascus. I'm not at all surprised by Ananias' response when the Lord tells him to go and pray for Saul. He knows Saul's reputation and that he has come to arrest men like him and take them back to Jerusalem. Why on earth would God want him to take such a risk and go and pray for this man who is doing so much evil? God asks Ananias to believe that God can change Saul and make him an instrument of mercy. So he goes, and when he arrives, he places his hands on Saul and says, against all expectations, Brother Saul. In this simple act, Ananias extends incredible mercy to Saul and includes him in the very community that he has come to destroy. As he prays, Saul regains his sight. His physical sight is restored, but his spiritual sight is forever changed. This moment will be a reminder for Saul the rest of his life that he is now part of a community that is called to testify to the power of the risen Christ to change even the most obstinate heart. Wouldn't you love to have heard some of the conversations Ananias and Saul had in the next days? Does Ananias tell Saul about the future suffering he will endure? Is Saul ready to hear that he'll be sent to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, the Gentiles of all people? (laughs) We don't know. But clearly, we do know that every word Ananias spoke or God spoke to Ananias about Saul, came true. A blinding light, a paradigm shift in in thinking, and the kindness of an enemy. In these three scenes, we see the power of the resurrected Jesus to transform Saul from from a self-righteous Pharisee into the apostle to the Gentiles. It's really important to understand that this change was not the product of study or self-improvement. It was the 
product of an encounter with the merciful God. Not surprisingly, God's mercy will be a consistent theme in Saul's life and ministry. In the years to come, he will write in his letter to the Ephesians that God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. Without God's mercy, there was no hope for Saul. Without God's mercy, there's no hope for you or I. We cannot get from death to life apart from the resurrected Jesus. Saul's story always resonates with me because it gives me hope. I know that I'm a lot more like the early Saul than I want to admit. I'm prone to reduce the gospel to things I should do, ways I should behave, and ideas that I should hold. And before long, I can easily find myself behaving more like a first-century Pharisee than a recipient of the mercy of God mediated through Jesus Christ. I start to think that, actually, God's pretty lucky to have me on his side. I start to look down on those who are not like me, who don't think or behave like me or dress like me, who have different experiences than me. I move away from people rather than towards them. I put my agenda ahead of people. I put being right or even being more right as more important than relationships. Candidly, I see this as a problem for more than just me. I'm troubled by the rhetoric of division in our country. I'm troubled by the fact that this division has crept into the church. I'm troubled that we often seem more intent on pursuing political and religious orthodoxies than on laying hands on somebody and saying brother or sister. When I look at my own heart, I see that often I'm Javert, but I really want to be like Jean Valjean. (laughs) I believe that my reluctance to extend God's mercy to others is a reflection of my narrow understanding of God's mercy toward me. I don't need to just try harder. I need to have a reorienting encounter with the risen Christ. If you find yourself in that place of withholding mercy, it may be that you too need a fresh awakening to the riches of God's mercy that he's shown us in Jesus. The risen Christ encounters us in many ways, in blinding light or in a still small voice, through his written word or through the words of others in worship and in prayer, through the extraordinary and through the ordinary, in the dramatic and in the gentle and steady walk of one who's always known his presence. Perhaps you've never encountered Jesus and would like to today. You'll find a prayer of belief on page four of the worship folder, or if you prefer, 
you're welcome to come up after the service and there'll be folks here who will pray with you. Our life in the already will consist of many epiphanies, many reorientations in our understanding of God's mercy. Living as God's resurrection people right now, today, means we must be people who live in God's mercy and then extend that mercy outward to whomever God brings into our lives. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, that your steadfast love never ceases. Your mercies never come to an end. We thank you, Lord, that without your mercy, we are lost in our sin and in darkness. And we thank you, Lord, that you have opened our eyes to see the riches of your mercy. Help us to be men and women, boys and girls, who embody your mercy in our lives to the praise and honor and glory of your holy name. Amen.